You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. Happy anniversary. And also with you, I think is the appropriate response. This is so cool to be home again. Now, I understand that since I was here, and I was here throughout my teens and 20s, I mean, this church shaped me and my relationship with Jesus, for which I am so grateful. I understand that since then, many of you who are attending here were not around then. We do not know each other. We have not yet developed a friendship, but we're already family. And that's what Jesus does. He makes people who have no business being friends, he makes us family. He takes people that are so diverse that there's nothing else that would pull us together. I mean, look at us. Is there anything that would get us hanging out together? Would it belong to the same sports club? Would that do it? I don't do sports. Look at me. Would it be a kind of music that we listen to? What would be the thing that would rally us together? It's Jesus. That's why I love hanging out with Christians who are different than me rather than just kind of cloistering with those who are just like me. But when I know Christians who are different than me, I want to run towards rather than away because I get to participate in that beautiful sociological miracle called the church. Where, as Ephesians 2 says, in Christ he just tore down the dividing wall, the barrier that stood between us to create one new people together out of all the diverse kinds of people. That's a sociological miracle that is evidence of the truth of the gospel. And we as the church get to participate in that in beautiful ways. I, uh, I'm so grateful to Jonathan and Keith and then Uncle Stu being here. I mean, how many years did I sit where you are, Uncle Stu, and just listen to you? And now... Um, you have to listen to me, I'm sorry. It's payback time. So I, I have, the memories that I have as I walk through this church and how God met me here are so precious. Um, yes, it's true. Some of those memories include being Jesus for the Easter cantatas. Um, and that was a beautiful privilege. I had someone say, and Bruxy, you still have the face of Jesus. And then they went on to say, and sort of the body of Buddha. So I understand. <clears throat> right? I get it. But I have these also these beautiful memories of the fact that this is where I learned to fall in love with Jesus. This is where I learned to fall in love with Jesus again and again and again. Something that I'm so grateful for. Um, that Jesus became the centerpiece of my faith. And not only to fall in love with Jesus, but then fall in love with the message of Jesus that we call the gospel. That we are commissioned by Jesus to go into the world and to share. Um, fell in love with that and was encouraged to get out there and to and to begin to share this message with others. And I'm so grateful for the Jesus-centricity of the legacy of this church and how God is using this now and into the future. I I know that sometimes in some churches, when the Spirit moves, for which we are most grateful, uh, we forget that the Spirit's job is to be the breath of God who blows us towards Christ. This is what Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he he will testify about me. He's gonna move you towards me. When the spirit blows, he moves us towards Jesus. We may feel his wind at our back, but we turn our faces to Christ. And so one of the marks of a spirit-filled church will be a church that's gaga for Jesus. And I really experienced that here. I mean, sometimes within our Pentecostal circles, when the spirit blows, we respond, ooh, what was that? And we want just more of the Spirit as though the Spirit is the endpoint destination. But the Spirit's never our endpoint destination. The Spirit's blowing us towards Jesus. And so I fell in love with Jesus here and continue to just come back to his gospel again and again. One of the things that I notice in the Bible is that there is this ministry of reminding, a ministry of reminding, Christians reminding other Christians of the most important truths. 
The gospel is not a message that we are saved by and then move on to other stuff. The gospel is not just a message that people are saved by, it's a message that saved people live by. It's the message we should return to again and again and again. I like how the Apostle Paul, when he's beginning the book of Romans, he says this. He says, I'm obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish, and that is why I am also eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Who's the you he's, he's saying I wanna preach the gospel to here? He's writing to the church. First and foremost, Paul says, I wanna to come to Rome and I wanna preach the gospel to you, to the Christians who are there. That's what I intend to do when I come. And so he writes the book of Romans to the church, preaches the gospel through the book of Romans, and he says, and then I wanna come in person, follow that up, and teach it. And preaching the gospel to one another is that ministry of reminding. By the way, I also like that he says <clears throat> that I'm obligated both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. I don't know if they caught that or not. I wanna preach this to the smart and the stupid, and that's why I wanna to talk to you. Then he says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. There it is, the ministry of reminding. I want to remind you of the gospel which you received, upon which you've taken your stand. The Apostle Paul personally mentored, discipled the Corinthians. But when he writes them back, he says, we're not going to move on to new material. We're going to come back to the basics. The Apostle Peter says something very similar. He says this in 2 Peter 1. I will always remind you of these things. In the context, talking about the gospel, even though... You know them and are firmly established on the truth that you now have. This church is founded on the gospel. This is where I fell in love with the gospel and I wanna remind you of the things upon which you have firmly taken your stand so that we can thank God for the past but also open our eyes to what he's doing in the present and then move forward in the future with great anticipation. So let's take a few moments just to talk about the basics of this thing called the gospel. And can I say this by the way? Uh, I love turning monologue into dialogue. And so if you have any questions afterwards, I'd love to talk with you, but sometimes the best questions hit us a day later or at night. And if that's the case and you want to get in touch, with a name like Bruxy, I should be easy to find online. So social media, I think I'm on most of the platforms. And if you have a question, if it's a question I've provoked, then please get in touch. I live for this stuff and would be happy to talk with you and connect with you with any questions that you have, especially if you're someone just processing your faith and trying to figure out where you stand. Um, this is time well spent. I would always be happy to have that conversation. Now, what is the gospel? Well, you know what? It's interesting in that there's no one soundbite that's repeated over and over again in the New Testament. The church explained the gospel in different ways, given different contexts, but always pointing to some central themes. So let's refresh ourselves on what that might mean. Now, in order to understand what the Bible says is the gospel, it might be good for us to understand what we have been taught is the gospel already. If we have grown up within a North American context, in the Western society, we have been influenced by a certain way of presenting the gospel that is kind of a post-Reformation way of seeing the gospel, and it's very true and it's very wonderful. My thesis is it's just a bit limited. Let me explain. Has anyone ever heard of something called the four spiritual laws? Hands up, four spiritual laws, great. How many of you have it, just so I can get a balancing view? And you can put your hand up too. You haven't heard of the four spiritual laws, Brexit, what are you talking about? Okay, how many of you are opposed to raising your hand for polls in church? You can, all right. There's kind of nobody on either side. Pentecostal church and they won't raise their hands. What's going on, man? I go away for a few years and, anyway, here we are. Four spiritual laws were written in the 1950s and they capture an aspect of the gospel so well. Here it is, law number one. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. 
That's an iconic phrase. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. So true. Law number two. Our sin has separated us from God. It's a beautiful way of putting it too because it really gets to the essence of what the word sin means. The word sin has a a couple of different usages um, and there's different words that are translated sin in the Bible but the primary word in the New Testament means to miss the mark that is as an arrow hitting a bullseye to be off course. Sin is to be off course. Sometimes you'll be talking with someone and they'll say, I don't really like the word sin. You're just using that word to make me feel guilty. I'm always happy to say, all right, you choose the word. But choose whatever word refers to this world being off course and us not always being the best version of ourselves because you know that's true for your life and you know it's true for everybody else. Just look at the world around us. People say, I don't believe in sin. I think that's fascinating because sin is the most empirically verifiable doctrine within the Christian faith. Just look at history. Just look around. There's something wrong with everything. Whatever that is, that's what we're calling sin. You want to use another word, that's fine. It's the truth and the reality that I want to talk to you about. So that, that arrow that misses the mark, if we, if we dig into the word even deeper, the word that means this, to miss the mark or to be off course, is hemartia. Hemartia, this Greek word, is a compound word made out of two different words. The ha at the beginning means not. It's a negation word. And the, hemart- the, the amartia, the ha-martia, the martia comes from meros, which means to be together or to be joined. So the word for sin literally means to not be together. And now you ask someone, do you think you have it all together? Because if you don't feel like you're all together, that's what we're talking about. Because Jesus has come to put us back together with who we were originally intended to be. And so whenever we're not together personally or we're not together relationally or we're not together in our ultimate, ultimately in our relationship with God, this is what we call sin. And this beautiful truth that our sin has separated us from God is, is a fundamental problem that, to which we need a solution. Uh, number three, Jesus is God's only provision for our salvation. Brings us back to Jesus brilliantly. And then number four, we must receive salvation by faith in Christ, not through the road of religion, but through the road of faith. Jesus, used never, Jesus never used the word religion. He did use the word faith, which means trust. It's a relational word. In fact, the only positive use of the word religion in the entire Bible is where your mind is going to right now, if you know your Bible, and I know the verse you're going to, because it's the only one you could go to. And that's James chapter one, 26 and 27. The only religion that God honors is pure and faultless is this, and to care for people practically, and don't copy the way of the world. Um, Which is ironic because the only positive use of the word religion in the Bible has nothing to do with what we would think of as religion. James doesn't point out any of the religious hallmarks. The only religion that God cares about in pure faultless is to say your prayers this many times, read the holy book this often, and, and make sure you attend these services on the weekend, and make sure you... No, none of the marks of religion are mentioned. It's go love people. Don't copy the divisive way of the world. Go and love people. Otherwise, Jesus just always used the word faith. This is a relational connection directly with God that threatens the religious system. And so this captures it so well. But having said that, um, the four spiritual laws birthed then a whole movement, a whole way of thinking about the gospel. Um, After the four spiritual laws came the bridge to life by the navigators. You don't need to be able to read this. What you do need to know is it's all the same four points with different words. After the bridge to life came steps to peace with God from the Billy Graham Association. Same four points using different words. After that came the Roman road, uh, which is four different verses within the book of Romans. Same points, different words. Are you catching on? We really love our list of four, don't we? 
And then, now more recently, there's been the Reformed Roman Road, which suggests that the first four chapters of the Book of Romans actually lists these same four points, which is fascinating. Um, and in England, uh, recently, they've come out with what's called the four. And so they use symbols to make, guess what, the same four points. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, but sin has divided us, that's brilliant. Uh, Jesus is the one who can put us back together again. What are you gonna do about it? Are you gonna trust or not? I love this. Having said that, all of this focus is a very important aspect of the gospel, but I think the gospel even says more than this. It says even more. Let's talk about that for a few minutes. Oh, by the way, we used to draw this out. I don't know if you have ever drawn it this way when talking about it with friends, or whether it be in a booklet. It could be in a booklet as well. You, when I was a kid, there's this chasm first. Before the cross was there, we had a chasm. Sin was the chasm. God was on one side. And probably today it says people, but back then it just said man. And I remember as a kid asking the question, can women go to heaven? And then I thought, I'm a boy. It doesn't apply to me, so I'll move on. Anyway, then we would say there's this chasm, but then we would say, but the cross of Christ is the bridge for us to get across the chasm. At which point I would also say this is both a blessing and a problem because I'm not that athletic a young chap and I don't know if I can scale the top of that cross. It seems to be just as much of an impediment as it is a bridge. So that being said, one of the things, I love this diagram, just one of the things I would change because we'd always draw the arrow going in one direction, I would just change the direction of the arrow and say that actually Jesus is not just a bridge for us to get to God, it's about God coming to us. God himself is the bridge. You know when people say, are there many paths that go up the mountain? I said, that question assumes that God's up on a mountain. But through Jesus, God has come down off the mountain. God has come to us. He's not just a path up the mountain. He is God coming to us, Emmanuel, God with us. And so the direction of the gospel is toward us. God's love is so great. So to help people at our church, at the Meeting House, um, understand the gospel for themselves, but also communicate it better, uh, we've put together some materials, which we're sharing with you too, uh, especially in my book and study guide, Reunion, that talk about the gospel in one word, three words, and 30 words. The gospel in one word, three words, and 30 words, which I would love to share with you just briefly. These are, this is all the same message, just in varying degrees of detail. Let's start with the gospel in one word. This ministry of reminding, that's what we're participating in here. What would be some candidates for the gospel in one word? Go ahead, audience participation time, shout some out. Love, good, I hear love. Jesus, what's it, what else? Faith, grace, excellent, grace, good. What, what are some other words, gospel in one word? Forgiveness, Unless you're loud and clear, all I'm really hearing is <laughs> um, Let me just say, please shout courageously because there's no wrong answer here. There's no wrong answer. Okay, maybe if you shouted Satan, there'd be a wrong answer, I, I admit. But other than that, there's pretty much no wrong answer. What is the gospel in one word? Oh, reunion, that's nice. Passion, compassion. Justification, I think I heard. Conviction. Conviction. Excellent. Say again. Tolerance. Forgiveness. Salvation. Salvation. Excellent. Well, these are good. You guys are good. Well discipled. Thumbs up, Pastor. <clears throat> let, me, 
L- let me suggest uh, a couple of runners up and then I'll let you know what I think would be, it'd be the best word for us to distill the gospel down to one word. But a couple of runners up, somebody said grace. Right on. Grace is that inherently irreligious aspect of the gospel. It's irreligious because it threatens the religious system. It's God doing the end run around religion and saying grace is God giving us as a gift everything that religion tries to do but fails to do. Grace is God giving us as a gift everything that religion tries to do but fails to do. That's God gracing or gifting us with salvation that we simply trust. We simply believe that it's true and it is true. That's what receiving it by Faith means we simply trust that it's true. Um, And this is, of course, what got Jesus killed from a human perspective. We know from a divine perspective, he came to lay his life down as a ransom for many, as he says in Mark 10, 45. But we know that from a human perspective, what got Jesus killed is that he threatened the religious system so much so that it was the religious leaders who called for his death. And they turned to the political leaders to execute Jesus, but it was the religious leaders who were motivated because of the threat to their system. And of course, that's always true, and history bears this out. Whenever religion gets in bed with politics, the result is always violence. And this is what killed Christ from a human historical perspective. The threat to the system was embedded in his message, in his message of grace. Let me try and illustrate it uh, through uh, a movie. Here's movie trivia time. What movie is this a picture of? Say it again. You're right, it's Forrest Gump. Again, good discipleship happening here. Do you remember, now, even if you have never seen the movie Forrest Gump, you'll be aware of some of the memes that have traveled through society of Forrest Gump. Like, run, Forrest, run! Which is this scene where his friend Jenny realizes Forrest is being picked on by some other guys who are going to do him harm. So she tells Forrest to run away, but here's the problem. Forrest has had legs that don't work so well, and he has had these braces on for a long time to help him walk. And it's challenging, but at least he could walk better than he could without them. Is that true? Well, this is what... Forrest doesn't realize is that over time, his legs have been healed. They've gotten well. They are good. They work excellently. So now the same braces that were designed to help him walk are the actual tools, machinery, that will hinder him from moving up the way he was designed to move. And you see, when the healing happens, you no longer need the braces. Well, this, in this scene, she tells him to run, and he does, and they break, and he realizes his legs are strong, and he can now move better than he could with the braces, even though they are originally designed to help. Isn't this a beautiful picture of the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant? D- did you, you notice your Bible's divided into two parts, right? The Old Covenant, the covenant of law, the law of Moses, and then... That gives way, that bends the knee to the new covenant, the covenant of Christ, the covenant that moves us from law to love, from rules to relationship. So now we no longer have an exoskeleton of law. Uh, We no longer have braces that kind of help us move in a Godward direction. It was right, it was right for its time. But But now we are healed. The new covenant promises healing, not just a new brace to make you live well, but but a healed heart, so that from the inside out, you're gonna live more like the people we were originally designed to be in the first place. In the Old Testament, the prophecy of Jeremiah is this. Jeremiah says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. I will put my law on their minds and write on their hearts. It's going to be an inside out covenant, and it will not be like, notice the new covenant's not just a new covenant, it's a new kind of covenant. 
It's not just replacing one set of laws with another set of laws. It's actually going inside and changing us from the inside out. Ezekiel puts it this way when talking about the new covenant. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. A new heart and a new spirit. That's inside out healing. And then he says, and I will put my spirit on you. A new heart, a new spirit, and my spirit. A new heart, a new spirit, and my spirit. That's a radical change. Now, we are not just people who will follow Jesus on our own steam, on our own effort. We will not just be people of a New Testament religion. We will be people of the changed heart. And that heart will be changed so that it's made ready for the Spirit of God to dwell inside us. And then we become that temple. The New Testament says we're the temple of the Spirit. That's an irreligious concept. We might not notice that when the New Testament talks about us being the temple, there was currently a temple in Jerusalem, and that was the temple where God was supposed to dwell. And the writers had the audacity to say, actually, we're the temple. And it's not just us as individuals saying my body is a temple. One time in the New Testament does refer to us as individuals, and sometimes people will say that today, my body is a temple. People with my body don't say that that often, but my body is a temple. And that's a beautiful thing, but the main emphasis of the New Testament is that we together are the temple. As Peter would say, we are like living stones. We're living participants in one temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. The people of the changed heart. But we need each other to encourage us to find the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our presence. That's the nature of the new covenant, fully remade. And now we can be in partnership with God's Spirit. This is grace. This is grace. And I just said that's the runner-up, and I still think it's pretty great news. Uh, Gospel in one word, runner-up, grace. Here's another runner-up for the gospel in one word. And it's a word I didn't hear anybody say. Maybe you said it and I didn't hear you. you But you're in good company because I've done this for a number of years and I rarely hear anyone say this word, which is fascinating because it's the primary word that Jesus uses to sum up the gospel. And as people who have been trained in the legacy of the four spiritual laws, that the gospel is primarily just about forgiveness for sin, period, we, we have actually trained ourselves at the subconscious level to, to miss, to ignore what Jesus said is a primary way of thinking about the gospel. And you're in good company uh, I was at a pastor's conference just last week, tried the same exercise with them, a whole room full of pastors, nobody said this word. And yet for Jesus, it's the primary word he would use to point to the nature of his good news message. What word am I thinking of? It's a K word. It's the word kingdom. Kingdom. This is how Jesus talked about the gospel. He would say things like this in Mark 1, 15. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. The coming of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he saw this as the gospel that we needed to repent and believe in. He would say the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. You can reach out and touch it. This is really good news. But the word kingdom is kind of archaic. We're not really sure what it means. So so we default to other ways of talking about the gospel. But we shouldn't forget this. There's so much truth packed into this concept of the kingdom. The kingdom, what what is the kingdom? The kingdom is is any, any place where one will in one way, holds sway. It is a realm within which one will and one way holds sway. And that unity of purpose allows us all to be together and moving in the same direction. One of the ways we could define it is to say a kingdom is a way of living in line with a shared will and a shared way. And when that will and that way is the way of Jesus, 
we can all get in line with this and then find fellowship with one another with a shared purpose and mission in life. So you see there's a sociological aspect to the gospel that is not just about individual salvation so I can go to heaven when I die. It's about living differently. It's a movement of people that is transnational. It's multi-ethnic and it has every age and stage and every socioeconomic status and gender coming together and saying, we are one and we're moving together to accomplish a similar thing. This gives me purpose in life. This gives me purpose. So my purpose every day, every day I wake up to experience and to expand the kingdom of Christ. That's my purpose, to experience and expand the kingdom of Christ. I do this in relationship. This is what the church is. The church is an outpost of the kingdom. This is an embassy. So when you go to a foreign country, you could find the Canadian embassy and you can go and when you step inside, it's like you're on Canadian soil and you get a little bit of Canadiana in that foreign country. And we are an embassy on behalf of the kingdom of Christ, representing the foreign policy of our king to this nation, to Canada. And we live differently. We have a kingdom culture. The culture of the kingdom is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what our culture is like, if you had to describe the culture of the kingdom. Or look at the characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians 13. We have a way, and it's in line with the will of the king. And that movement starts here and now. <clears throat> in some sense, everyone has had a kingdom. You had a kingdom when you were a baby. When you were born into this world, your kingdom was any realm within which your will and your way held sway. And so maybe for you as a baby, your kingdom was your crib. But you realized that you could exert your authority within your kingdom to have other subjects of your kingdom come running at your beck and call at 2 o'clock in the morning when you screamed. And they would come, and they would give you food and a change of clothing and just keep you company when you didn't want to sleep. You had a little kingdom. As you grow older, your kingdom might expand, and it might be your whole bedroom. And you might go into your bedroom, and sure, mom and dad are telling you what to do around the house, but when you go into your bedroom, even if you're sent there as a punishment, go to your room. Well, you go into your room and say, I can do whatever I want now in my room. I'm going to listen to what I want to listen to. I'm going to read what I want to read. I'll lie down. I'll stand up. It's my room. It's my kingdom. And then you get older, and maybe you buy something that helps create a kingdom experience for you. Buy a car. You get your first car. Now you're driving down the road, and you're like, this is my car. I can do whatever I want with my car. I'm gonna to listen to whatever music I wanna to listen to. I'll listen to it at a volume I wanna to listen to it. I'll drive as fast as I wanna drive in my car. Until you bump up against the enforcers of the law of the larger kingdom <laughs> within which your car kingdom is driving. And, and so there are these, these different concepts of kingdom where a will and a way hold sway and sometimes that's my will and my way and then you finally buy your own house and now you can do whatever you want in your house. You can dance around naked in your house and you can say, I can do whatever, no one can tell me different because my house. And you get married and now someone else moves in and they just brought their own kingdom with them. <laughs> and you gotta figure out how to live together with these two kingdoms coming together and they said, well, you gotta take these posters off the wall. This is ridiculous. Those posters, but that's my... Not that we had any of these conversations in our marriage, not at all. Uh, so th then you have kids, it starts all over again. They're little kingdoms asserting themselves. So a kingdom, a realm within which, see every marriage in every country and every relationship will do better when they can align to one will in one way that they allow to hold sway and that's the will and the way of Jesus. And, and now we become the people of that kingdom. And our diversity then has a, a common core that aligns us in this miraculous way. 
Let's not forget the gospel of the kingdom because we're calling people then to a movement right now. Not just when you die, you can, be forg- you can be forgiven of your sins so that when you die, you'll go to heaven. That's beautiful and it's true. But that truncates the gospel into something that is not its full, expansive, here and now nature. Pray this prayer, get forgiven of your sins, you can go to heaven when you die. How about this? Come and join a movement now where God is influencing our hearts to teach us how to love him and one another better right now. And in fact, we've started our eternal lives already right now by being born again into his kingdom as his kids. Uh, One illustration that I like to help teach people to understand the radical nature of the here and now-ness of the kingdom of Christ is to think of a timeline, and we're gonna use a body part to represent the timeline. Would you raise your forearm with me like so? Raise your forearm like so, and pretend this is a timeline that starts at our elbow, and it moves along to our fingertips. What happens next? Now, one of the ways we've been taught to teach about the kingdom of heaven is to say it's a whole new life that starts at the end of this life. Um, and so, and, and, but many religions will talk about that. When you die, you enter into this other paradise existence. I mean, we have, we, we have some that say you actually go around a couple of times, gets confusing. But then there are others who say, well, no, I'm an atheist. It just ends right here. That's it. But many of us have been preaching the gospel. Yeah, you can get forgiven of your sins so that when you die and your physical life is done, you'll enter your eternal life, which is beautiful. But Jesus went further than that. He said, oh, let me tell you about the kingdom of heaven. It starts right here. It starts right now. When you accept Christ as your Lord, you have entered in to your own eternity. You have entered into the kingdom of heaven starting now. You may still be alive physically, but your physical life has already been submitted to the spiritual life of eternity. When you die physically, that's just a blip. That's not your big transition. Your big transition is when you come to Christ. And then you've started eternity. And so we can ask the question, what kind of life do I want to live for eternity? I'll start living that life right now. Do you want to live a life of peace for all eternity? Start living that life right now because you've already started. You want to live a life of love for eternity? Start living that life of love now. We are already children of the kingdom. We live in the kingdom of light now. This changes everything for us. And it is an invitation then to join this beautiful movement of purpose and of peace that is moving forward. Well, I said, these are the runners up. They're pretty good for the runners up, but here's what I think is a gospel in one word. And I I root this in, well, the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially the gospel of Mark. I think the best word to qualify as the gospel in one word is Jesus. It's Jesus. Let me explain why. The entire story of Jesus is where we understand about grace, where we understand about kingdom, where we understand about love, where we understand all of the things we've been talking about that's rooted in the whole story of Jesus. Without Jesus, we don't have that. Uh, The Gospel of Mark begins this way. He says this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. That's Mark 1.1. He says, I'm starting right now to tell you the good news or the gospel of Jesus. And then he goes on not to just give us a pithy soundbite or, or a distilled statement. He goes on to tell us the whole story of the life, teachings, and actions, and death, and resurrection of Jesus. The whole Christ event is the gospel. And that's how Mark thought of the gospel. Everything Jesus is the gospel. And that means if it's not Jesus, it's not the gospel. 
Uh, Mark also talked this way, and so does Jesus in, in Mark, cha Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Do you know the story where Jesus goes to the town of Bethany and a woman anoints him with some expensive perfume and the disciples come along and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's the, we could sell that and give the money to the poor. And Jesus says, you'll always have the poor among you, which can be a confusing statement, but I think that's more than a promise, not a threat. He's saying there will always be people you can minister to. And the beautiful thing is when you minister to them, you'll find me there. Go find the poor, help the poor, you'll find me there. And that's always gonna be an opportunity. But right now, I'm actually, actually right here. Right? And so we don't have to go to the poor to find Jesus at this. He's right here. He says, let her anoint me, but then you'll have the poor. And so he, after this then, he, said, he goes on to say this. Truly I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, this story is gonna to be told. You see, Jesus thought of his whole life as the gospel. Otherwise, this wouldn't make sense. Otherwise, we'd have to artificially insert this story just to make sure that we didn't make Jesus out to be a liar whenever we told the gospel. The preacher would have to say, the gospel is this, God loves you, you've sinned, but Jesus is willing to forgive you, accept his gift by faith. That's the gospel. Oh, and there was this woman. And, she, and then we'd have to tell the story. Because Jesus says this story is going to get told every time the gospel is told, except we now know the gospel is the whole Christ event. This means that when you're having a good conversation about love and about faith, that's a good conversation, but it's not yet a gospel conversation until it's a Jesus conversation. You can have a conversation about the Bible, and your friends can ask you about all kinds of stories in the Bible, and where the dinosaurs go, and what happened with the flood, and then how did this work, and all. And you can be having great Bible conversations, but they're not gospel conversations until they're Jesus conversations. You can be talking about God in general, God's love and his kindness, and I just love God, and the spirit, and the way he's working in my life, beautiful. Have those conversations, but they're not gospel conversations until they're Jesus conversations. That's what we bring to the table to share with others. It's the gospel in one word. And now, well, well, <clears throat> the gospel in three words, are you ready for it? Settle down. The gospel in three words, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. If it's one word, it's all about Jesus. Well, what is it about Jesus? It's Jesus is Lord. It's that he's the one who has the right to tell us how to live. And he leads us in the right way, in the beautiful way. And he is Lord right now. Not was Lord, is. He's here. By the Spirit, Jesus is active in our midst, leading his people in his kingdom. Jesus is Lord. And then lastly, the gospel in 30 words, which will be shorter on than we were in the gospel in uh, one word. The gospel in 30 words. Now again, this is not meant to be something we just memorize and parrot, but it's a mental framework that helps capture some of the stuff we've been talking about just to remind us of how big a message this is. The gospel in 30 words, I would put it this way. Here it is. Jesus is God with us. Come to show us God's love, save us from sin, set up God's kingdom, and shut down religion so we can share in God's life. I'll say it again. Jesus is God with us. Come to show us God's love, save us from sin, set up God's kingdom, and shut down religion so we can share in God's life. 
I mean, it starts with this fundamental message that he's for us and not against us. That's what this means, that Jesus is God with us. His love and his, in, and his sin and, and his forgiveness for sins, this is what most presentations of the gospel end at right here. But now we know there's something deeper, richer, more expansive, right here, right now. Jesus called us to pray, thy kingdom come. Not, please rescue us out of this world so we can die and go into your kingdom. But thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we get to participate in this kingdom message here and now, this kingdom mission every day. And that this, the shutting down of religion, however you phrase it, there is something about just obeying the rules that is, is not the way of Jesus. It's not just obey these rules, it's tune into the spirit and follow Jesus. Live the life of love. You know how rules work, right? The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter seven. That actually by telling me not to do things, it just made me want to do them more. It inflames our temptation. You know it's true when you stand in an elevator and there's a sign on the wall that says, wet paint, do not touch. What's the first thing you want to do? You want to touch it. And then you, t- you touch it and then it's either wet or it's not. And if it's not, Wet, you're like, hey, I know more than the sign. It says it's wet, but I know it's not. You feel superior. And if it is wet, you go, yeah, I was right. Yeah. But either way, you're just going to touch it. And, and when you drive down the highway and it says 100 kilometers an hour is the speed limit, what do you do? As soon as you notice what the speed limit is, you say, well, better keep it well within the limit because that's the law. Is that what you do? Or do you say, hmm, 100 is the limit. How far beyond 100 can I go before I would get a ticket? Isn't that naturally how you? Law can end up backfiring. It's not that the law is wrong. It's that because of our sinful hearts that we'll be tempted toward. Now, in the new covenant, our hearts are cleansed, but we're still encased in flesh. And that temptation still comes. So there's something beautiful, though, if we can learn the way of the new covenant. The way of the new covenant says it's not about giving you more rules. It's about you being in tune with the love of Jesus and going and making, making loving choices. Let me close with this. With this, I close. I've always loved those words. At the end, of, not when Uncle Stu was preaching, but at the end of a long sermon, with this, I close, was like, oh, all right, we're landing the plane. I was on vacation in Germany a number of years ago with my wife and daughters. And I realized that if we're in Germany, it was my first time in Germany, I'm gonna get a chance to ride or drive down what highway? The Autobahn. And what's the speed limit on the Autobahn? There's no speed limit. How wacko is that? There's this highway where they make superior engineered cars and then they get you on the highway and they say drive as fast as you want. But it's fascinating because the fatality rate is not higher than anywhere else because it actually teaches you the way of wisdom. Here's what happened. We get our rental car and I'm like, I, I never got to do this before. I'm gonna drive as fast as I can, it's gonna be awesome. It was, okay, maybe it wasn't gonna be too fast. It was a rental camper, but still. Anyway, I'm gonna zoom that camper down the Autobahn and I'm gonna go as fast as I can because there's no speed limit, woo! And Nina, my wife, just leaned over. She says, hey, that's wonderful. She just says, remember how much you love us. That's all. That's all. Just remember how much you love us. 
And I was like, yeah, of course. I, yeah, I love you. I love you. But what does that have to do with the Autobahn? Let's go. Ah! And I get driving. And here's a thought that occurs to me that has never occurred to me before. As I started to get faster and faster and faster, and maybe a little too fast, I thought, I don't know if this is safe. Maybe I should just pull back a bit. Maybe I'm just, oh, no, a little bit, pull back a little bit more. I want to take care of my family. I want to make a loving choice for everyone involved. I'm going to be less risky maybe than I would be if it was just me. And I'm also, I want to be safe and I don't want to cause problems for people around me and I'm going to make sure I'm in the right lane if someone wants to pass me and I also just want to drive well so I can take care of my, and driving became an act of love rather than an act of law. And it's the first time in my life I experienced that. It was always how fast can I go beyond the law before I get a ticket? And now it is, What's the right speed to honor my family well? And I realized this is the new covenant. God says, sure, go do what you want. But if I'm the king, I'm going to influence your wants. I'm going to influence your will with my will. As Jesus prayed, thy will be done. And he models for us what we can pray. And so I'm, yeah, I want you to go and do church, not because you have to. That's the thing. We Christians, we say this at the meeting house every so often, we Christians are that crazy bunch who we don't operate by law, we operate by love. That means we are the group of people who get together every Sunday morning to celebrate the fact that we don't have to get together every Sunday morning. We're a group of people who read the Bible to learn the message that we don't have to read the Bible. We're a group of people who sing songs of praise to honor the God who tells us we don't have to sing songs of praise. These are not have-tos so we can go to heaven when we die because we've earned enough religious brownie points. These are get-tos. These are, this is a privilege for us that we get to be a part of this. God front-end loads our salvation, says do whatever you want, but I'm gonna start changing your wants and you're gonna find your fulfillment in the kingdom. And so it is so good to be part of a movement that says, yes, uh, I'm not just doing a religious duty. I am celebrating a spiritual freedom. This is the legacy of this church. This is what I have learned to celebrate, appreciate, and delight in over the years. And so I wanna close just by praying a prayer of commission for you that as you move forward, you will have 62 more years of of delighting in the irreligious, loving, forgiving, kingdom-oriented message of the gospel so that you delight in it here, but then it spills over and you share it beyond these walls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving the world so much that you sent your only begotten Son. Thank you for your love that is at the base of this good news message. Um, Jesus, thank you for coming to us and showing us the word of God, the message of God, the gospel of God, both in the words you spoke but in how you lived your life as God's word. Thank you for making it so clear to us how much God loves us and pursues us. And Spirit of God, thank you for blowing through our lives through this place, for filling this temple of humanity. Thank you for dwelling with us, changing us and making us ready for this beautiful, intimate relationship with you. I pray, Spirit of God, that you will continue to anoint, to bless, and to fill this place and these people with your presence so that Jesus may be glorified and there might be a sense of both peace and rest and also celebration and rejoicing. 
We pray for your blessing as we move forward together. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.